tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cobb. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Tom Petty was a master of the perfect three-chord rock song, an icon of American music. This week, we remember his life and music, and we've got a rare interview with the man himself from 2003. I think in the same week I got American Girl and Breakdown, and I knew they were both really good. That's a good week. It was a damn good week. You know, I mean, you really walk on air for a day. Yeah. And it's like, oh, God. Ah, <laughs> oh, that feels good. Celebration of Tom Petty coming up on Sound Opinions. Listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, we are going to devote this episode to Tom Petty. Died at the age of 66 on October 2 in Los Angeles, where he'd been living for a very long time. Uh, we had him in the studio for two hours talking about music in 2003. We'll be drawing from that interview uh, throughout this show and also giving our own thoughts on a rocker I think we both agree uh, generally underrated um, despite a 40-year career and and dozens of songs that resonate with people uh, from all generations. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I mean, we we have an artist who sold 80 million records and is underrated. How is that possible? Uh, But I think in in some cases it, it was because Petty, you know, created this very narrow vision of what to him was rock and roll and hewed to it throughout 40 years. Guitar, bass, drums, vocals, and not much else. He wrote about 40, 50 songs that as soon as you write the titles down, you remember what they are. You want to hum a few lines. It's sort of like yeah. John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival. That's a good comparison. This kind of journeyman rocker who ended up writing these songs that really define people's lives. Journeyman is a word that a lot of people frown upon because it just means a workaday person, right, who does a great job but isn't a superstar. I, I, I think that's Tom Petty, but mainly because he was so laconic and laid back and, and kind of just hangdog in a very southern way. Mm-hmm. Born in Gainesville, Florida, grew up there. The southern part uh, never left it. He was very aware of his Southern heritage, even though the music he really loved was California uh, pop music. You know, the Beatles, but the Beatles as filtered through the birds. I think that Rickenbacker, that chiming guitar sound... And though he loved bass guitars, drums, and let's not forget Ben Montench's keyboards, it was more from a sense of this is my palette and and I can write songs here that are timeless. They could have been written in 1967 or 2017. Absolutely, and I think uh, one of the more endearing aspects of Tom Petty, why he was so relatable to so many people, like I could have a beer with that guy even though I just paid 50 bucks to go see him at a stadium, uh, was because he was a fan first and foremost and he never lost that yen, that, that, uh, that spirit, that enthusiasm when he would talk about the people that inspired him. 
And in that 2003 interview, he talked about uh, meeting Elvis Presley as a kid. Yeah, that's a staggering event in my life. Uh, you know, it's kind of cosmic when I look at it now, and it's it's almost cliched, but, you know, when I was a kid around 61, I guess I was like 11 years old, and I had an uncle who was, who, you know, kind of developed film and was in the film business somewhat in Gainesville, Florida. It's not a huge film, but then he liked to film. <laughs> he filmed the football. Hollywood pra- East, you know, yeah. Football <laughs> practice, you know. Right. But he got hired onto an Elvis movie for in some capacity. And, uh, my aunt, I was, I remember sitting under a pine tree with no particular thought at all, you know, at 11 years old. My aunt pulls in and says, you want to go see Elvis Presley, you know? And I had this vague memory of Elvis Presley, you know, of some controversy in the household when I was five or six about someone who wiggled. Yeah, and, dangerous. But that's all, you know? And, and then I thought, well, I've never seen a famous person. I, I think I'll go, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I went, and there was this enormous, you know, super Elvis mania in the streets kind of thing, you know. Mm. But I'd never seen in my life, you know. I guess no one had. Yeah. And I, I really remember that, and I remember him coming in in uh, uh, white Cadillacs. There were five or six white Cadillacs. And all these guys getting out with, like, sharkskin suits, you know. That, that, <laughs> the Memphis uh, Mafia, yeah. 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 <laughs> They all have black pompadours and shark skin suits, yeah. you know. And I had never seen anything like that, you yeah. know. And, uh, and I kept saying, well, which one's Elvis? And then suddenly you go, that one's Elvis, you know. And, you know, he came over and he said hello, you know. And mm. we were dutifully marched out with our uncle, you know, yeah, and yeah. my cousins. and. He said hi, and this then just went into his trailer. You know, and, uh, <laughs> oh well, <laughs> which, which I can completely understand. You know, it's not and, like he gave uh, me the uh, special guitar and the uh, blessing no, on the no, head no, and no, said, no. "Go forth and rock, blessing my son." It's not what you'd call a, yeah. a conversation. No. <laughs> and, uh, and but you know, after that, while Elvis is in the trailer, you know, we I get pretty excited, you know, and because there are crowds of girls at the chain link fence and they're all waving records you know and eventually he came out and they'd pass the records over the fence to somebody and they'd pass them to elvis and he'd sign them and they'd pass them back you know and uh i thought at that moment wow if i just had a record Mm. i could approach elvis and get his autograph you know yeah so he was there for about a week and so when i went home i said about this huge search to find a record having mm. no money whatsoever i finally hit gold with uh, this guy down the street who had a sister who'd gone to college in the 50s and she had this the famous box in my life that had every great rock and roll single yeah, you know yeah. and i had the whammo slingshot you know the one that goes around your wrist and you fire it made of aluminum I traded the slingshot. <laughs> this is all true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I traded the slingshot shot for this box of records. I never went back to see Elvis, but the records themselves completely changed my life. It yeah. was all I did from then till now. Yeah. You know, all I did was play that music. Hey, baby, I ain't asking what you. And I 
played it. You know, my parents were concerned about me and stuff because <laughs> I lost any interest in, in sports, else. anything. No. You know, this is all I did. Yeah. I didn't play an instrument. I just listened. Yeah. And uh, and I wouldn't play an instrument until many years later. Well, several years later, when the uh, when the Beatles came, suddenly everybody in the neighborhood had a guitar because yeah. it was so clear, like. This is a way out. Right, know? right, right, right. Well, the Great American Garage Explosion. Right. When the Beatles came along, yeah. did, did they blow away Elvis as far as you were concerned? Completely. Was it a whole new thing? Yeah, because you had to want to hold your hand, and I remember the same week he came out with something like Kentucky Rain or something like, you know, the mm. cold, or no, it was Kissing Cousin was his new single. I mean, it was, it was really black and white. Well, I've got a gal, she's as cute as she can be. She's a distant cousin, but she's not too distant with me. He was out, done, <laughs> through. Yeah. And so was everything else that wasn't a Beatle, you mm -hmm. know, uh, or from England. It really was that quick, and it was this magical thing. You know, I, I tried to explain it to my kids, like, there was no music press, you know. There was no, <laughs> there was no way to tell us about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a bicycle would pass you, and you'd hear... Beatles Sunday night, mm. Sunday night Beatles. You know, we weren't even sure what Beatles were, but that's how everybody came to be watching it Sunday night. Is there yeah. was just some groundswell of on Sullivan, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And uh, you know, the whole nation was sitting there Sunday night, and things were never the same. You know, Now, there, there's a story that goes, um, your dad was so upset with the fact that you were not doing well in school that some of those valuable records you're talking about got smashed because yeah, of Yeah, he, he, he destroyed them one night. Uh, just bec He just thought I'd lost my mind, you know. And This was how, when you were about how old? <sighs> Twelve. And he was kind of a jerk, you know. I mean, <laughs> to, to be honest, I mean, it was kind of a jerky thing to do. But yeah. You know, he kind of smashed them, and then my mom gave me some dough to replace them, but I bought all different records, you know. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> so, you were moving on. Yeah, but he was, it was a serious thing. They thought I'd gone kind of cuckoo. That was Tom Petty talking to Greg and me. I apparently had not yet uh, hit puberty, Greg, back in 2003 <laughs> when we did that incredible two-hour interview with Tom Petty. Uh, uh, you know, the, the enthusiasm of a rock fan. You know, we were so excited to be sitting with one of our heroes. He is rec recalling how excited he was uh, uh, meeting Elvis, obviously, and later we talked to him about George Harrison and Bob Dylan. He had been in several bands starting when he was a teenager. He got his first guitar in 1960. 62. Grew his hair long. His dad, uh, as we heard, did not approve. Uh, one band, the Sundowners in the mid-60s. Mudcrutch is the first band that uh, I think he was serious about. Got started in 1970. Included uh, two notable members, guitarist Mike Campbell and keyboardist Ben Montench. I live on the west side by the county reservoir And she lives down on the post But they just could not get it together in the studio. Uh, Petty 
gets a solo deal and he begins recording and he winds up going back to these two guys he was friends with. They knew the same musical language. We had Ben Montench uh, as a guest on Sound Opinions not long ago. Uh, Mike Campbell, the guitarist. The Heartbreakers form around uh, that first record deal. 1976 self-titled debut, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, and they score some singles. Uh, Breakdown makes its way on the radio. Uh, it's not a huge hit, but Petty is on the map. Uh, unwisely, he had signed a very poor songwriting mm-hmm. deal, and much of uh, uh, the money that was due him, uh, he had to fight for years and years to get back. I think uh, the record company didn't quite know how to market uh, Tom Petty at the time, and it was illustrated by that first album cover where they had Tom posing in a leather jacket with a bandolier around his uh, this was new wave. <laughs> shoulder. That seems to be a running joke in the band's history, that first album cover, and Tom Petty laughed about it in that 2003 interview. I blame that, that entirely on Stan Lynch, our drummer, uh, the first Heartbreakers drummer, you know, he, he was wearing this belt of uh, some kind of machine gun shells or something. <laughs> he was, and, wow, that's know, scary. He was kind of a scary guy. Yeah, he still is. And uh, we were, I mean that, and, and all, it all love and <laughs> whatever, LA stuff. Stan, you know. <laughs> but, you know, he said, oh, here, and try this, and he took his belt off and, and threw it over my shoulder. And, you know, the photographer thought, oh, hey, that's good. Let's get a couple of <laughs> yeah. and, you know, being naive and yeah. just hit town sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the new kid That's LA. the one they're going to you know, use. I went for it, and that's the one they used. Yeah. So forever I've had to... And you became a punk rock new waver as a result of that image. Just because I had the the motorcycle jacket on. And uh, they immediately associated us with punk rock. And... Um, there's even a record somebody showed me that came out in 76 or 77 that one side of it, it's from, you know, some Scandinavian country or something, and mm-hmm. one side is Ramones and one side is us, you know. Wow. As if they had, you know. So, and they put us on tours with, you know. But there was still, uh, still there was a similar value. You guys were stripping away the elaborate. You were getting back to a basic yes, rock absolutely. sound. The basic energy. We all have the same sort of, romantic notion about mm-hmm. you know making things pure again in the world of rock and roll but you know we weren't really what you'd call a punk rock group i yeah. mean in the in the classic sense yeah so i always had the feeling that that new wave term came up because they didn't know where to put us right, and uh, right. and a few others, you know, right. they didn't really know where to drop us. Right. We weren't Fleetwood Mac, right. you know, and but we weren't the Sex Pistols. So right. they invented this corny term, new wave, which can mean anything. Right. What did Lester um, Banks say about your first album? <laughs> <laughs> I can quote it. He said, the... Uh, these guys are so wet behind their ears, you take scuba gear to get through side two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Wildly, 
I remember, you know, I was just a kid starting to review records and, you know, the Ramones and the Clash and, and, and the Patti Smith were who we were paying attention to. And, and Patti was sort of of a piece, of a part of that conversation. Even though I'm not sure he wanted to be part of it, his record company certainly thought, oh, this, maybe this is a way to market the guy. They certainly looked the part on the cover of that record. But then, as you mentioned, a song like Breakdown, where does that fit in with what's going on now? It, you know, as I said, minor hit. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say with those first couple of records that Petty made around that time, he was very much in the pocket of what became later known as New Wave. He was writing these really terse blasts of unapologetic rock and roll and, you know, bringing a sensibility to it that made it total sense. If he wants to go on tour with somebody like Elvis Costello at the time, who's also viewed as a punk rocker, or Patti Smith, or Mink DeVille, or The Clash, it made total sense. Here's an example of what I'm talking about from the second album, a track called I Need to Know from Tom Petty in Know by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers from their second album, You're Gonna Get It, 1978. What are your memories of Tom Petty and his music? Call and leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll continue our tribute to Tom Petty after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
fox might melt And the seed may burn Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we are remembering Tom Petty, who died at the age of 66, revisiting a 2003 interview throughout the show. One of the proudest moments you and I ever had on Sound mm-hmm. Opinions, Greg. We had to dig deep into the uh, Sound Opinions archive, a.k.a. your basement, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to find that tape. And, uh, and it holds up well. An incredible songwriter. Those words don't get used often enough. He just finished his 40th anniversary tour with the Heartbreakers, a wonderful live performer throughout those 40 years. Only a week before his death, that tour wrapped up. Mm. But as a songwriter, he doesn't get his due. I agree, Jim. I mean, the the point about Petty is that he's viewed as sort of this one-dimensional journeyman guy, as you said, but there was so much nuance in his songwriting. And I actually got into an argument with somebody in the last day or two, about his lyrics. And they said, oh, it was just Moon June type oh. of stuff. It was cliche. And I go, you know, sometimes simpler is better. He understood that this ain't poetry, but at the same time, he wasn't dumbing down anything. He was talking about very complex ideas and boiling them down to three verses, which is a real art. You know, it was get in, get out, say what you need. Uh, and, and he was able to distill so much information into those, you know, 12 lines of verse uh, in, in every song that he wrote, or at least his best ones, that, you know, that it was astonishing. I'm thinking of a song like A Woman in Love, uh, parentheses, It's Not Me, from the Hard Promises album in 1981. By this point, he was really becoming not only a great hard rocker, I was pointing out the whole association with punk and new wave on his first couple of records, but at this point, you know, his, his feel for the ballads, yeah. And the more sensitive material was really uh, coming to the fore. And in A Woman in Love, in three verses, he talks about these shifting tides of, of this guy's emotions. You know, he's ticked off that this girl doesn't love him. Uh, he's deeply hurt by it. And then at the, in the third verse, he's starting to express some empathy for her and realizing she's getting into a relationship where the guy really doesn't love her as much as she loves him. Mm-hmm. So you've got this very complicated uh, three relationships in the song two relationships in the song that he's talking about in very nuanced terms. And that third verse kills me every time, you know, where, where it sort of drops down and he sings about time after time, night after night. She would look up at me and, she, and say she was lonely. I don't understand the world today, you know. I don't understand what she needed. He's sort of pointing the finger back at himself. I'm to blame for this. You know, that, that's a really good point because few male rock superstars of his generation have written as much from the woman's viewpoint with as much empathy and understanding as he is. We're going to talk about American Girl later, but this is a great example, Greg. It's, you know, it, his lyrics are spot on, and what a band. I mean, the the way that Mike Campbell, Mike Campbell's guitar fills and Ben Montench's little bits on the keyboards complement the emotional uh, journey that this guy is going through on this song is really amazing and just created this beautiful, smoky, uh, sensual atmosphere. Well, right. do what you want. Don't try to talk. Don't say nothing. She used to be the kind of walk you have in your heart. She 
Woman in Love by Tom Petty from 1981. A nice uh, tribute there, Greg. We talked a lot with Tom about songwriting in 2003 when we got to hang with him. I still can't believe we can say that. We got to hang with him for two hours talking about music. And I asked, how do you know when you've written a really great song? Because it feels good to you. You know, it just this just feels really good, and I'm not embarrassed to sing it. Uh, you know, I, I can sing it with confidence and and feel good about it, and it, it it does what I want it to do. When I hear it, it takes me somewhere. And it's very hard to define, you know, like, but you do know when you just wrote one, you mm. know. I mean, you really walk on air for a day. Yeah. And it's like, oh, God, <laughs> God that feels good, you yeah, know. Yeah. But if you set out to do it, you can never do it, you right, know. Right. So it's kind of nerve-wracking waiting for it to happen <laughs> <laughs> can't force it yeah. when, when was the first time that happened what you were walking on air after you thought i writ i've written a song that um, i can be pretty proud of i think american girl when i when i wrote that and uh i think in the same week i got american girl and uh, and breakdown and i knew they were both really good that's a and good week it was a damn good week. <laughs> <laughs> that was a damn good week.
I knew that those were good songs. I didn't know if it was just because they were mine and I, I was way biased, you know. And then the rest of my life, I've tried <laughs> to get outside of that and, and right. you know, not be biased. But it's it's so so hard, you know, yeah. because you have them, you know, like people describe them like you're, they're your children, you know, and that's not quite true, but they're very important to you. A little bit of you goes into them, you know. So I never take them for granted. And it's just lovely that somebody else besides me wants to hear it. I'm still amazed by that. <laughs> that was us talking to Tom Petty in 2003. We'll keep hearing parts of that interview throughout this show. Greg, we had a tough time uh, structuring this show because what an extraordinary four-decade career. Uh, so many high points. You know, it's, it's not. We didn't want to just be linear about it, but just look at the accomplishments. I think the first time I saw Tom Petty, it was in 1986, that 60-date world tour where uh, they they were opening the Heartbreakers for Bob Dylan and then backing Dylan up. Um, Petty begins to make solo albums in uh, 1989, Full Moon Fever. Uh, you know, and to tell the truth, th- there was never much difference between Tom Petty's solo albums since the Heartbreakers often played yeah. on them. Uh, but there was as with the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, a wonderful psychedelic phase mm-hmm. to Tom Petty's career. Uh, when I wrote about him uh, as a psychedelic artist in in my first book, Kaleidoscope Eyes, Turn On Your Mind, History of Psychedelic Rock, uh, people are like, what's Tom Petty doing in here? But listen to the way he expanded the sonic palette on Mary Jane's Last Dance. Last dance with Mary Jane, one more time to kill the pain. On free falling, even to a degree, which is psychedelic in the way that the birds eight miles high was. Or especially, don't come around here no more. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he didn't love video, but who can forget that video of him as the Mad Hatter seducing poor Alice down the rabbit hole uh, of psychedelic rock? Don't come around here no more. Don't come around here no more. Whatever you're looking for. It came from a love of Revolver, of the psychedelic birds. Um, Four decades, never stopped turning out memorable songs, never stopped pushing himself, even though, as you said, very limited sonic palette, guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards. How much he did with that, we'll talk about the traveling Wilburys later, too, but it, it never stopped evolving. Well, the creativity kept flowing. I mean, the faucet was always open with Petty. The great songs kept coming through the decades. Uh, and he sustained his relevance. But at the same time, I think what was key to those songs and the fact that they were so emotionally complex, people may not have even realized that because he was able to put across these ideas so directly and in some cases very simply, 
uh, was there was a lot going on in his life. I mean, there was a time in the 80s where he smashed his hand, basically shattered his left hand because he was so frustrated in the, in the recording studio. His house burned down, including all his possessions in the 80s. Um, he, his, he went through a terrible divorce that just devastated him in the 90s. So you talk about... Left him addicted know, to heroin. His, his relationship songs, I mean, they went through the ringer. And then finally getting uh, remarried in the early 2000s and, and, and finding uh, new love uh, and, and bringing that into his songs as well, as well as his relationship with his children and how that evolved o- over the years. So there was no shortage of uh, complexity and pain in Tom Petty's life, and the way he was able to filter it into his songs without becoming overly confessional uh, was really an extraordinary gift. And you asked him about writing through the turmoil when we talked to him in 2003. I think it probably does inspire you. I wouldn't advise anybody to get into a bad situation to do it, you know, but I think if you're an artist in the first place, that if if you go, if I say someone lights your house on fire with you and your family in it, it's going to creep into your painting, you mm. know, like you might paint a different picture than, yeah. than you would have, you know, a day earlier. So, yes, they, I think songs come out of it, though I don't think, and I've thought about this a lot, I don't think you have to suffer in order to do this and do it well, mm. you know. But, yeah, it does come out of that. Yeah. But I really want to believe that you don't have to do that. Well, know? that's that that's that whole and, romantic notion. I mean, that's what's caused so many stupid people to kill themselves in, in, in this rock yeah, and roll there, world. There's know? nothing romantic about dying for rock and roll. Yeah. You know, what was it? John, John Lennon had a quote about uh, Sid Vicious, you know, that he mm-hmm. die so that we might rock. That is Tom Petty from a 2003 interview on Sound Opinions, and we're going to continue our remembrance of Tom Petty in a minute, but as always, we want to hear from you. What did Tom Petty's music mean to you? Call and leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Well, the top brass don't like him talking so much And he won't play what they say to play And he don't want to change what don't need to change There goes the last DJ Who plays what he wants to play And says what he wants to say Hey, hey, hey And there goes your freedom of choice Can't do what he did 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We've been doing this for a long time, Greg. In this show, we're paying tribute uh, to the music and life of Tom Petty and drawing from a 2003 Sound Opinions interview we did with him. Um, you know, we made the point that he's often underrated in rock history by rock critics. And yet the Traveling Wilburys, which come out of that 86 tour with the Heartbreakers backing and opening for Dylan, uh, a band he puts together basically for Dylan mm. with Roy Orbison, uh, the producer Jeff Lynn of Electric Light Orchestra, uh, uh, George Harrison, you know. It's interesting to note that those superstars, Harrison, Orbison, Dylan, they didn't consider Tom a sideman. They considered him a peer. She was there at the bar. She heard my guitar. She was long and tall. She was the queen of them all. was helping them out at that point. Dylan was lost in many ways. Petty offers, hey Bob, you're a great songwriter. I'll be your backing band. I'll take you out on tour. Let's go to another part of our interview on Sound Opinions with Tom Petty in 2003. That was a, you're a fan. You're a friend of Bob's, but also a fan. Uh -huh. uh, you, you know, he was coming out of a rough period. I mean, just about every Dylan, Dylanologist I know of says, you know, that was a rough period for Dylan. Early to mid 80s, you started touring with him. I think those Traveling Wilburys records were really key for him. He was in some kind of a slump, and it seemed like that snapped something out of him. I mean, did you did yeah. you notice that? Do you agree with that? I think so. I think we were the first group he had really come and embraced and played with as a unit. Mm. Uh, he had he kind of not been playing much at that point. He'd been he'd been through his Christian thing and uh, had kind of retreated in a yeah. way. And I think that. We did the show with him for Farm Aid, Barmaid as I called it. But <laughs> we got together and we rehearsed for three days and we did that. And then that night he said, well, you know, would you like, like to go on tour with us, you know? And let, let's go on a, a tour, me and, mm. me and you and the band, you know? And I said, okay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. And that stretched itself into years, you know? Mm. And then after that, the Traveling Wilburys. I think Dylan never forgot that, uh, deeply appreciated what Tom Petty did for him at that point in his career. George Harrison always wanted to be in a band. He didn't want to be a solo artist. After the Beatles, he missed being in a band. Uh, Tom says, George, I'll put a band together for, with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there you let's go. Hang, man. Let's hang, man. Let's yeah. jam in the basement. Being beat up and battered around. Being sent up and I'm being shot down. You're the best thing that I've ever found Handle me with care Roy Orbison, not, in, not part of the conversation for decades. One of the great artists that influenced the young Tom Petty's life uh, helped give him a final shot at, at glory uh, before Roy Orbison died a few years later. And here, the Traveling Wilburys was the start of his comeback. Two albums, 1988 and 1990. 
Greg, we never asked Tom Petty directly about the traveling Wilburys. We're sitting talking to him for two hours. But he did start talking about his pal George Harrison and their relationship. And it's a moment uh, that was so honest and real that so many listeners, even all these years later, continue to recall it for us. What's the least rock and roll thing you do for fun? The least rock and roll thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, like Neil Young has his Lionel trains, right? Oh yeah, and you I just don't never. Know. I I don't really have anything like that. I'm thinking like Martha Stewart gardening or something, you know. <laughs> I do have an interest in gardening. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the broadest sense, you know. I yeah. like to stand there and tell them where to put the rocks and. Oh, yeah, yeah, you don't want to do know, anything. Would you pick that right. up from your pal George Harrison? I bet. Oh, he was far better than me. <laughs> he actually dug. Yes, he, he, was he had there. a bulldozer. <laughs> he, he'd say, "Come to Maui with me, and we're gonna, we're gonna, gonna I got my new bulldozer, and I'm gonna clear like a path through this." You know, <laughs> I'd be wow. like, would he, would he "George, I'm not going to Maui with you in a bulldozer." What? Would, uh, would actually do that? Would Harrison oh, yeah. drive it? Sure, he would. He'd get right on the bulldozer and, and you know, clear, you know, <laughs> and it's, you know, go through the jungle and clear space to build wow. a, a shack or whatever yeah. he was doing. Or Bill Rhodes and you know oh he was nuts that's, and uh, that's cool yeah he loved the garden and he knew the name of every flower and every plant you walk by so did he grow like really great weed no he didn't <laughs> you know because <laughs> no. I've heard actually we interviewed somebody very close to McCartney once and they said McCartney has had two full-time botanists who mm. were just devoted to growing his pot I've well, maybe, but I... <laughs> I to me, that's the definition of success. George wasn't really a pothead, you know? He, yeah. he would, wouldn't would say no, necessarily, but only on occasion. And uh, But he really loved flowers, you know? Yeah. I mean, he bought by... I remember we were going by some flower, some plant once, and he said, Tom, look at this. Because I have pictures of these in my wallet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's so uncool that it's like the coolest thing ever. That's the thing. That was a little bit more of Tom Petty from our 2003 interview with him on Sound Opinions. Uh, Jim, I think the only appropriate way to go out in a tribute to Tom Petty is to play some of the music that we love so much. And it's been hard to oh, choose just a few songs we're going to highlight. There, there are obvious choices. There are not so obvious ones. He wrote a, a raft of great songs. You know, the deep cuts in the Tom Petty catalog are legion. You know, you could, you could just live among those uh, less celebrated songs because I think they're so high quality. One of the uh, late career albums in Tom Petty's catalog that I keep turning to as one of his underrated uh, classics is uh, the Echo album from 1999. Mm -hmm. It was written in the aftermath of that brutal uh, divorce that I talked about. It really affected Tom in a profound way to the point where he was... Uh, people didn't even recognize him. He was he was not taking care of himself. He, he was apparently hooked on heroin for a while. Um, he was a he was a lonely, lost soul uh, for a good period of time in the late '90s. And the Echo album was written in the aftermath of that. So when we talk about Tom Petty as a lyricist, as a guy who could get to the emotional core of a relationship, I think the Echo album is a great example of it. And the room and the and the song specifically, "Room at the Top" from that record. Now, again, this is a song that some fans interpret as a celebratory one. I got a room at the top of the world tonight, and I ain't coming down, mm. you know? And people are looking at that like, well, he's, he's made it. He's gotten through this tough moment. And I see it as a guy who is just isolating himself from everything that he knows. And no, I ain't coming down. It means, like, I'm going to be out here alone for the rest of my life. I'm not going to know anybody. And it, it, it is really, like, almost a cry for help <laughs> in some ways. It, it's, it's just a brutal 
uh, brutal song in many ways, and at the same time, beautifully done. One of, more, one of his most intimate performances, one of the most vulnerable performances in Petty's career. So people who say, you know, oh, Petty's greatest hits, they were, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, he started petering out by the 90s. Uh, haven't heard some of this late period work and spent the time with it that it deserves. Uh, that Echo album from 1999, I still point to it as a classic, and Room at the Top is a great Tom Petty song. I got a room at the top of the world tonight I can see everything tonight Got a room where everyone can have a drink and forget those things that went wrong in their life. I got a room at the top of the world tonight. I got a room.
Room at the Top from Tom Petty from 1999 on Sound Opinions. Jim, uh, what do you want to focus on from Tom Petty's career? Greg, we've got to wrap up this show. It seems like we could go on for hours. Tom Petty dead at the age of 66. I will say this, and I will fight anybody who disagrees. (laughs) Tied for number one or number two. I go back and forth as the best rock and roll song of all time. Sheena is a punk rocker by the Ramones or American Girl by Tom Petty. It's an obvious thing to play in a show like this, but the last song he performed on Mm -hmm. stage live, the last show of the 40th anniversary tour at the Hollywood Bowl, he ends with this. What a great rock song. I mean, Stan Lynch's drum part. You know, I can't tell you how long it took me as a drummer Mm. to try to figure out how to play that. And the chiming Rickenbacker. Here's how much... Uh, uh, the Rick played uh, what he took from the birds. Roger McGuinn of the birds covered this song. Jonathan Demme in his final film. It's the centerpiece of the song, just as it had been in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Cameron Crowe used it in so many films. And it's from a girl's viewpoint. She was an American girl, raised on promises. Couldn't help thinking there was a little more to life. Mm. You know, somewhere else. It was a great big world, lots of places to run to. If she had to die trying, she had one little promise she was going to keep. What is that promise? Uh, He doesn't spell it out. It is the essential message at the heart of all great rock and roll. Carpe diem. Mm. Live now. Mm. Seize the moment. Mm. We're alive. Let's celebrate. What a tremendous song. We had Petty's longtime keyboardist, Ben Montench, on Sound Opinions earlier this year. He talked about the first time he heard this song. He had American Girl, and somebody told me, I don't remember who, yeah, he's got this new song, maybe Mike told me. He's got this new song, and a lot of it doesn't rhyme. And if you think about that first verse, it just doesn't rhyme. I thought, well, that's cool. And I came in, and they had cut the track. It's kind of an odd sound, and Mike had already put that synthesizer at the beginning. It goes, that leads it in. I'm like, wow, this this is fantastic. And then I realized, oh, this is called American Girl. It's right today is July 4th, 1976. It's mm. actually the bicentennial. Yeah. And we're recording a song with American in the title. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I wonder if anybody will ever hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she was an American girl Raised on promises She couldn't help thinking That there was a little more life Some
Tom Petty, American Girl. I can't think of a better way, Greg, to pay tribute to this great artist, dead at the age of 66. That wraps up our tribute to Tom Petty. On next week's show, we're going to have an in-person interview and performance from Jamila Woods. Greg, we have to thank the uh, old Sound Opinions crew who uh, helped us do that interview with Tom Petty, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, Sean Campbell, and Sound Opinions Today is produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Ayana Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. I'm calling to comment on your just-publicized interview with Mavis Staples. And I just want to say how inspirational that was and how inspired it left me feeling and encouraged. She's a phenomenal woman, and I remember all of the music by her and Pop Staples. And I want to thank you and your station, because not only, I'm sure, was it good for her, but it was certainly good for your listeners to be lifted up. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sam Glass, Jr. I'm calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. And I just wanted to uh, comment on how great the... Uh, show was about Mavis Staples and I remember hearing the Staples singers back when my family, we were a military family, we were stationed in the Philippines and I know that my mother leaned very heavily on music and one of the things that helped her so much was the Staples singers uh, songs, uh, I'm Just Another Soldier, I'll Take You There, a lot of that stuff. Because here we were, you know, in this strange country, thousands of thousands of miles away from home. I think those songs, especially the Stable Singer songs, helped her through. And in turn, it turned me on to their music, and I have uh, loved it ever since. My name's John. Uh, I live in Devotion, North Carolina. Hey, I just listened to the Sound Opinions uh, interview with uh, Mavis Staples. I'm not a very religious person or anything, but some of her songs on the last couple albums she did, Oh, Creep Along Moses, Only the Lord Knows, and uh, Jesus Lay Down Beside Me. I mean, those are, you know, hell, you don't have to be religious to, to love those songs. I mean, they're just incredible songs. Anyway, Mavis Staples, she's a national treasure. <laughs> she's, she's awesome. Thank you very much. What can you do? What can you do when you can't trust? 
anybody to tell you the truth. Can't trust him, can't trust her. What to do, what to do now? Only the Lord knows, and he ain't you. Hi, this is Lou. I'm in Chicago. I'm calling about the episodes that you've had with Mavis Staples and how inspiring they've been. I think there's an inherent contradiction between the heroism of her work in the world uh, and what that adds to her music and the previous show that you all had about artists and whether they can be separated from their art. It seems like there's a lot of people who really want to have their cake and eat it too. And if creeps like R. Kelly and other musicians of uh, reprehensible personal lives, if we have to separate that from their art when it comes to appreciating their art, but then we get to enjoy it, when there's a Stevie Wonder or a Bob Dylan or someone who's making the world a better place, I think that we've got to pick a side. Thanks. This is George. I live on Bainbridge Island, Washington. I'm a musical junkie. I've been listening to Sound Opinions for years and was lucky enough to see you in Seattle with Mud Honey. You know, I listen to a lot of different genres of music and gospel hasn't been among them. But after hearing part two of your brilliant interview with the uh, charming, fascinating, and big-hearted Mavis Staples, that's going to change. Thank you so much for what you do, and keep up the good work. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.